This morning we're going to break from a small tradition that we have. We're going to take two chapters instead of one this morning. As we make our way through Job, uh, these two chapters go together and there's no reason to split them up. So we're going to be looking at chapter 29 and 30 in the book of Job this morning. That's on page 435. Job 29, starting at verse 1, all the way through the end of 30 at 31. I think we'll be able to cover this in in the appropriate amount of time. It shouldn't take too long. And then when we return, Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at chapter 31, and we're going to see in a little more detail how chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31 all go together as one cohesive unit, but... For today, 29 and 30, we'll we'll cover in a standalone fashion. So let's take a look at that. Before we do, let's go to the Word, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. As we open up your Word, we, we confess and acknowledge that this is your inerrant, infallible Word. It is not simply a guide for life, it is truth. It is your revelation. These are your words to us. And we ask that you would show us the true meaning of these passages that you would allow us to see and hear and remember and apply. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man who retired and moved to Florida and bought a home down there. And he bought a home with a pool. And he had never had a pool before. And his neighbor to the right had a pool. And his neighbor to the left had a pool. So one day, he was in his backyard having one of those over-the-fence conversations, getting to know his new neighbors. And he said to the neighbor on the right, how do you keep your pool clean? And the neighbor said, well, uh, I like a a really clear, crystal clear pool. And that that gets me motivated to to work on it. So when I get out there, I, I put all the chemicals in and I... I make sure I vacuum the bottom and I skim off the bugs on the top and the leaves and I'm I'm constantly monitoring. But I got to tell you, once it starts to go bad, once it starts to turn green, I just kind of let it go because it's so much work and I just let it go until the next time we're having company over and I know we have to have a clean pool and then I get out there and start working on it again. And the man said, okay. And then a couple of days later, he was talking to his neighbor on the left, and he said, how do you keep your pool clean? And the neighbor said, oh, yeah, um, well, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. He said, I like to get out there. I I vacuum aggressively. He said, I I shock it. I I get the chlorine shocker, and I I shock it, and I adjust the levels, and I I get it all clean and and make sure everything's sparkling. He said, but i I got to tell you, once I've got it looking good, I kind of forget about it. You know, it's the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, I mean, once I get it looking good, I tend to neglect it until I start seeing problems again. The man said, okay. And he thought, I've just heard two very different approaches. I think I need to find out how to do it right. So he went to the pool supply store to talk to the pool guy, and he asked the same question. He said, how do I keep my pool clean? And the employee reached under the counter and pulled out a sheet, and because he's heard this question before, and he said, here's what you want to do. 
You want to keep your chlorine levels at two to three parts per million. He said, you want to keep your pH at 7.4. That's the optimum. He said, what you were trying to do is avoid the extremes. He said, if you go to one end, if you, if you try to over-treat it, because some people get so intent and they're, they're kind of OCD and they want to make sure it stays clean no matter what, and they, they threw too much at it. And he said, you're going to get eye irritation, nose irritation. If your kids are in the pool and they swallow it, it stomach irritation, it could provoke asthma in, in the worst case of some people. So you don't want that. On the other hand, you don't want to let it go because I guarantee you, it will turn green. You're going to get algae growth and it's going to become a breeding ground for bacteria and parasites. What you want to do is keep it right in the middle. What you want to do is get out there with the test kit just a few minutes every day, add a little bit if he needs it, uh, take, you know, add a little bit of the other chemical if, it, if it's too high or too low. Constant maintenance. Just get out there every day. That's the best approach. Avoiding the extremes. This morning we're going to see Job at two extremes. Not chlorine or pH levels, but two extremes in terms of seasons in life. Chapter 29 is going to be one of those extremes. Chapter 29 is Job remembering about his life before God brought the tsunami of suffering, before all this calamity came down upon him, when things were good, when things were in abundant supply, when he had children, when he had his family with him, when he had great honor and respect. These were days of abundance and personal honor. The second extreme we're going to see this morning is chapter 30. And Job doesn't have to remember because it's his present reality. Chapter 30 is Job's present suffering. and It's marked by loss and shame and, and mockery by the lowest of society. There are days filled with physical and spiritual pain. They are dark days of affliction. There are two extremes. But if we've learned nothing from Job, we've seen that Job is a righteous and blameless man who turns from evil and fears God. Job maintains a steady faith through both of these extremes, whether it's abundance and, and wealth and honor or suffering and pain and facing death. He has everyday faith. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do we have everyday faith? Or do we have something else? And my guess is that all of us at some point have experienced a mild form of something else. At least in, in some kind of mild form. So we're going to look at these two extremes, what, those some, what that something else is, and then of course how to avoid it. So let's look at these two chapters. This is going to be a little bit of a longer reading, starting at Job 29. Remember that Job 29, this is the, the extreme on the top end. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, the aged rose and stood, the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. 
The voice of the noble, nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw it, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried out for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence in the light of my face. They did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. And now chapter 30. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone, though want and hard, through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste of desolation. They pick salt ore and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them after, as a, after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, and you make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand, and in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. 
My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. I think you can hear the contrast between those chapters. Very distinct. Two very different pictures. Verse 1 of 29 tells us, And Job again took up his discourse and said, So we need to understand, this is Job speaking. Oh, that I were as in the months of old. Verse 2. Job is longing for this previous time when he was on top of things. A time before his calamity and suffering came upon him. And what's the first thing that Job mentions when he longs for the, the previous season in life, when the, when the pool was crystal clear? What's the first thing that he, he comments on? First and foremost, it is in the days when God watched over me. His lamp, his light, the friendship of God was upon him when the Almighty was yet with me. So it's not honor. It's not wealth. It's not his own physical health. It's not even his own children. He longs for the days when the friendship of God was upon his tent. We've seen this from from the beginning. At several points during Job, we've seen that this is what caused Job the most pain. Of all the things he experienced, the thing that hurt the most was his broken fellowship and the absence of the felt presence of God. Only after talking about his broken relationship with God and the withdrawal of his presence, that's when he starts to mention children, verse 5, when my children were all around me, his wealth, in verse 6, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured forth oil. This is, of course, figurative language for abundance. Um, In the ancient Near East, oil was used for cooking, It was used as bartering currency. It was used for um, fuel, for oil lamps so they could see at night. Remember, no electricity. It was used for daily basic needs. So to have oil in abundance was a sign of prosperity and, and wealth. So this language tells us in this former days, Job lacked nothing. He had an abundant supply of, of goods and resources, and he was wealthy because the Lord had blessed him. He was wealthy because the Lord had blessed him. So after that initial longing for the days when God was uh, extending his blessing and presence and fellowship, now in verses 7 and 11, now we turn to something called gate respect, is what we're going to call this. When I went, when I went out to the gate of the city, and you remember in the time of Job, the gate of the city was the equivalent of city hall, Uh, the records department, the courtroom, um, the police station, the news outlet, the business and law office, all these things combined into one. It was where things got done. It was where transactions took place. It was where the elders spoke and made pronouncements. Anything official came out of the central hub. And this is where Job used to shine. This is where he was the number one guy. He had a continually reserved seat. All the other elders of the city paid attention when Job showed up. They stood aside. They stopped talking when Job showed up. That's how much gate respect he had. We can almost picture this bustling, uh, multiple side conversations happening, and then, and then Job walks in and everyone silences. 
And, and the crowd parts as Job walks through, and the elders nod silently their, their approval and their respect. Job had gave respect. Why? Verse 12 tells us, because, because of the things that, that follow after verse 12. He delivered the poor, he looked out for the widow, he helped care for the blind and the lame. Now this is interesting. Remember Eliphaz back in chapter 22? Uh, Eliphaz could not persuade Job to um, come over to his side and his worldview, so he resorted to just flat out lying, a false narrative. Remember that in 22? Eliphaz, he, he couldn't persuade Job to see things his way, so instead he just leveled false accusations at Job. And if you remember what some of those accusations were, they look strikingly similar to the things that Job is saying here. Look at Job 22.9. This is back in life as he says, you have, not, or you have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless, meaning orphans, were crushed. But now look what Job says in our passage. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Job's saying, that's not true. All those things you said of me, that's, that's not how it was. No. I delivered the poor, the fatherless, the widow. So the way Job describes his life, this is a direct contradiction to what Eliphaz was, was saying about him back in 22. All this language, eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, meaning he helped them. He, he helped people who were in need. He gave assistance. He was standing up for the one who was weak and could not stand up and defend themselves. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. All this language is the epitome of what it meant to be a righteous man in the ancient Near East. Every single thing he lists off it's almost like he's drawing this ideal picture of the righteous man in the ancient Near East. And Job's saying, that, that was me. That was me. That's why he used to command respect at the city gate. It's because everything he did was for the benefit of others, for the benefit of his community. Then we turn in verse 18. Life expectations. He's still remembering to that, that good time. Uh, then, meaning back then, before he descended from greatness, then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. So nest is sometimes used figuratively in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it means a room, or a, a place, or a house. Uh, ESV says nest, NIV translates it as house. Excuse me, ESV says nest, NIV says house. So the idea here is that Job expected to live a long and peaceful life, he expected to die at home, surrounded by his family. He expected his days would be long, as numerous as the sand. And then in verse 19, we see Job's life compared to a tree. We've seen that before, too. Back in chapter 14, remember Job was, was reflecting on his situation, and he compared uh, man's life to a tree. And he said, at least with a tree, when you cut it down, a stump is left. And if you've given enough time and the right conditions and water, sometimes a shoot will sprout out. Unless, in other words, a tree has a second chance. Not so with man. And he's looking at it from, from his own perspective. He said, was saying, when I'm done, that's it. I'm over. So we've seen 
his life compared to a tree before. And then here in 29, he's saying that he did not expect to be cut down. He expected to be this life-giving tree with roots that extended out to the water. A tree that has roots that, that go out to the water is a tree that's, that's alive and vibrant and thriving because it has all this, this access to nutrients and, and waters. That's what Job expected. He didn't expect to, to be cut down. Uh, we see the same kind of theme in Psalm 1 where the Bible commands a, or compares a righteous man to a tree by by waters, Psalm 1-3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. That's what Job was expecting. He was expecting to be a, a life-giving, vibrant shade tree planted by the water that was going to live out long days because, this is why he expected that, because he was a blameless and righteous man who turned from evil and feared them. Dear God. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. This is all language of physical strength and power. Job expected to live out his days full of vigor without having any kind of major health issues, even in his old, old age. And then in 21 through 25, uh, everything in, in 21 through 25 screams honor and, and high regard. Uh, when Job spoke, uh, he didn't get challenged when he went to the city gate as, as the crowd parted and listened to him. Job spoke and, and no one contradicted him. Job, Job spoke and, and no one, after Job got done speaking, no one stood up and said, Job, uh, thank you for that, but I, I just want to add a couple more points. No one said, okay, that's, we'll take that under advisement, but I think we're going to have to think about that for a little while longer. Nobody was saying those things. Everybody heard Job, and it was immediate, unanimous agreement. Yes, that sounds good. What you say is wise. We all agree. Talk about honor and respect. I chose their way. He was a decision maker in the community. He sat as chief, like a king among his troops. So when Job spoke, the people listened and obeyed with the same loyalty and, and precision as a commanding officer giving orders to his troops. Quite a picture. Job was on top of the world. Now let's go to chapter 30. A little bit of a, a different picture here. This is the, the green algae covered pool. And we start with the description of lowlifes in society. So the first part is a description and then it talks more about them mocking him. But this is a, a description of the people who are mocking Job. And the first thing we see is they were younger than he is. That in and itself is an insult there was a definite pecking order in terms of respect and honor in the ancient Near East, and it traveled upwards in regards to age. The children were supposed to respect their fathers, the fathers were supposed to respect their fathers, and it wasn't just limited to family units, it was anybody, anybody on the street. If there was someone younger and someone older, it was assumed that the younger person would pay respect to the older person. So now we can see just how much of an insult this is, and that's why this is included in the text. He goes out of the way to show us 
These are younger than I am. They should be respecting me, but they're not. Dogs were not viewed as man's best friend or kept as beloved family pets. They were viewed as scavengers. They were ugly, despised animals. They were, they were not uh, in any way positive. So in the second half of verse 2, that, that's a whopper of an insult. You remember, and I don't know how if it is still this way today, but it used to be when you wanted to insult someone, you could say something derogatory about their mother. And it really wasn't about their mother, it was about you. That's what's going on here, except it's to the father. Whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. He's insulting the wicked men that are, that are mocking him by insulting their, their fathers. It says they, they wandered around at night, scavenging for food, eating plants and roots that were barely edible. They were shunned by other people. They lived outside the camp, outside the city walls and caves. And then in verse 8, a senseless, a nameless brood. This is here to tell us that these people that are being described and are mocking Job are not uh, virtuous poor. They, these are not people that that would like to work and would like to, to provide for their own household, but for whatever reason, they, they can't get a job. These are, are not people who, who want to, to do the right thing. These are not law-abiding people of good reputation. Neither are they victims of some kind of oppression. Instead, they are unreliable, untrustworthy, dishonest people. They don't want to earn their own living. They want to just take whatever they want. And use violence if necessary. These are dangerous people. They don't know how to behave among other people. They don't know how to live responsibly in society. They're both foolish and wicked. So they're outside the city gate. They're out. They're living in caves, not because someone forced them out. They're living in caves because they brought the poverty and the homelessness that they're experiencing on themselves through their own behavior. These are the people that are mocking Job. These people, this nameless, senseless brood, that are not good enough for society, are saying, Job, you're not good enough for us. That's how bad it's gotten. These people are rejected, but the rejected ones are rejecting Job. I have become their song, as in taunting. They're taunting him in song. They're mocking him, these lowlifes. They're, they're spitting on him. Verse 11, because God had loosed my cord and humbled me. So that loosed my cord could refer to a couple different things. It's, a, it's an illustration. Either the center pole of a, a tent, when it's pulled out, yanked out, the tent just kind of collapses on itself. Or the, the cord that's loosed on a bow, a bowstring, when it's under tension, it's got a lot of power and, and potential energy, but when you take the bowstring off, now it's just, it's nothing, it's useless. So either way, it refers to the fact that, that God has loosed his cord and humbled him. Therefore, he is being mocked by the lowlifes in society. And then verses 12 through 15, the rest of that language expands on Job's poor treatment from the lowest of the low, they push him away, they promote his calamity, and like an invading army, they crash through a wide breach in Job's wall and roll over him. 
Then in 16, more language about being in pain. My soul is poured out. Days of affliction have taken hold of me in contrast to his days of health. Verse 17, he cannot find escape through sleep. Continual gnawing pain that takes no rest. Verse 18 is language that makes it sound like he's being strangled by his own clothes. Um, it could be a reference to his skin because you know skin is something that we kind of figuratively wear and we can't take it off. And he has diseased diseased skin. Verses 19 and 20. Yes, God has sent us pain and suffering, but He will not disclose why. Remember, we talked about that last week. That's God's blueprint wisdom. Job asks why. God says, "I'm, I'm not going to tell you. That's for me to know." I stand and you will only look at me. God's silence and distance from Job is part of the pain. That's his number one complaint, is the absence of the felt presence of God. And then finally in verse 21 through 23, more language about how from Job's perspective, God seems to have become an enemy. Verse 24, in pain and alone. Not only is he in pain, but he's alone. Surely no one lays a hand of, well, excuse me. If you look at verse 24, there's a footnote that says the meaning of this Hebrew is uncertain. We've seen that several times in Job because this is extremely difficult Hebrew in the book of Job. So the NIV says this, Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. And the idea of this verse is that Job says something's off, something's not right. It makes sense that if someone's in pain and in need of help, it makes sense that someone would extend a hand, that they'd reach out to them. And then he goes on to say in verses 25 and 26, this is what I used to do. When I saw someone in need of assistance, I would help them out. When, someone, when, I, when I saw a genuine need, I would, I would come to the aid of someone. So why isn't someone doing that for me? And not just someone, but, but you, God. Don't you see me in distress? Why aren't you doing that for me? Instead, when he needed good, evil came. When he needed light, darkness came. Job is saying, this this doesn't make sense. I should be receiving some help here. Why isn't God answering me? Why isn't God coming to my aid? It's because he he feels alone. He's in pain and he's alone. Verses 27 through 30 uh, sounds a lot like verses 16 and 17. It's more physical pain description. Verse 28, his skin is diseased. He cries out for help and none comes. Verse 29, he's like an undesirable animal. It says jackal or ostrich. could also be translated as owl. These are animals that are far away from society. These are animals that are characteristic of wilderness, um, desert animals that, that don't have interaction with people. So he's an outcast. And then verse 30, his suffering and pain continue, and he is no longer joyful, but mourns. There is no laughter in Job's tent anymore. Those days are gone. What a contrast. Extremes. Verse, or chapter 29, Job is on top of the world. Chapter 30, Job is being crushed by the world. It's, it's one of the two. One, the pool is crystal clear, beautiful, uh, sparkling water. The other one, it's, it's algae covered. It's so dark you can't see the bottom. There's bugs 
and, and dead things floating in it. Two opposite extremes. When we look at the entire book of Job, we see Job maintaining a steady faith. Even in the face of extreme suffering, as described here in chapter 30, even in the face of impending death, Job expresses faith that his Redeemer lives and that he will be raised to life and that God will give him peace, even in the midst of all this, even in his experience of extreme pain. Job trusts God every day, no matter whether it's a chapter 29 or chapter 30 type of experience. In other words, he has everyday faith. And I asked at the beginning, do we have everyday faith? Do we have everyday faith? Faith that, that stays at the same pH level, no matter what kind of season we happen to be walking through? Or do we drift towards something else? And my guess is, at some point, we've all drifted towards something else. And I want to talk about a couple of those. One, one is this. One's called fair-weather faith. Let's just call it fair-weather faith. So this is uh, living out our faith in a very vibrant, uh, alive type of way, seeking the face of God, um, being a, a faithful follower of Jesus. When, when there's fair weather out, when, when the sun is shining, when there's not a cloud in the sky, when it's 78 degrees and the, the pool is nice and clean and clear and everything looks like a, like a Claritin commercial with the blue sky and the, and the green grass and everything so, so wonderful. Fair weather faith. Where we're seeking God's face, we're meeting with Him in prayer, we're reading His Word, we're serving Christ by serving His church. All these things that you'd associate with someone with a, a vibrant, genuine faith. These things are present when everything's going good, when we're experiencing fair weather. But when the clouds roll in and it gets cold and wet and dark, we withdraw from God. There was a man in his 20s, uh, several years ago, I, I knew a man in his 20s who was, was recently married had a great job. Um, they, they had just bought a house and everything was going very well. He was in the best shape of his life that he ever would be in. And he was in a worship service that was um, more Pentecostal, charismatic in nature. And, and during these worship services, they had a time when, when people were encouraged to stand up and testify. And so this was a time when just anybody could get up and either talk about what was going on in their life or praise God or bring a prayer request or, or things of that nature. And the man stood up and he held his Bible in his hand and he said, I, I'm just here this morning because I want to tell you that I got up this morning and I, I had breakfast and coffee and the sun was out and I had a good devotion time and I'm just here to say life is good. I, I'm feeling good. And by this time, the rest of the congregation was amening and, and clapping and kind of being whipped up. And, and he was very pumped up for Jesus. A couple of years later, he was going through a divorce. And they were having to sell the house. And things were not going good in his life. And he stopped going to church 
And he began to push away his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he began to fall away from God. And just in general, it was very obvious that he was no longer pumped up for Jesus. Fair weather faith. I'm fire for God when things are going good. But when things don't go good, eh, just kind of take your foot off the gas. Or maybe even tap the brakes in terms of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's fair, that's fair weather faith. That's when hard times or dark times come and all of a sudden it's just not that important anymore. Or it's kind of like looking at the algae-covered pool and saying, why bother? It doesn't really matter what I do at this point. Things were going, going great, but, but now that they're not, I don't, I don't even know if it's worth it to pray and ask God for help. Maybe you found yourself drifting. Now that's extreme. It's an extreme example, but maybe you found yourself drifting to that fair weather faith. It's a lot easier to get pumped up for Jesus when things are going good. Or maybe not. Maybe you say, no, that's not really me. Maybe it's it's more common that you drift towards something else. And this this is, I think, is more common among professing believers. We're going to call this foxhole faith. Okay, the first one was fair weather, this is foxhole faith. You've heard the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. And you know where that expression comes with? It, it basically means this. Even if somebody's a professing atheist and they say, I don't believe in God. When they're in the foxhole and, and the bullets are whizzing over their head and, and impacting the sandbags right behind their head and, and the enemy's tossing grenades and they're landing in the foxhole and you're, you're minutes away from death, even the atheist cries out, God, help me. Please, save me. All of a sudden, the no faith turns into, I believe in a God, and I want him to help me out right now. That's foxhole mentality. And, and that's what we kind of mean here by foxhole faith. It, it looks like this. Christians who profess faith, but for the most part, neglect seeking God's face and engaging with other believers. They have a maybe a dry or non-existent prayer life. Maybe some text prayers. Good morning, God. Thank you for this food. And then, and then that's kind of, kind of one-liners. Um, they don't really have time to serve. They don't really read his word. Definitely not on a regular basis. Maybe church attendance is spotty for no reason. One believer bumps into them and says, hey, I haven't seen you in church for a while. And they say, yeah, I don't know, I'm just kind of tired. So I, I haven't been coming. And this is how they live out their faith. When things are going well, they still claim to have faith in Jesus. God is important to me, they would say. But their actions tell a different story. But then something happens. Then, then we've got a crisis that emerges. Maybe they become sick or they get diagnosed with something serious. Or maybe their child gets in a car accident. They're in the hospital. Or maybe they uh, lose their job or, or some kind of crisis happens and then all of a sudden God I need you and they're back in church and they're on the edge of their seat and they're, they're, they're opening their, their Bible and, and looking for God to say something and they're on their knees and they're saying God I know I have kind of let things go slack but from now on I am yours I just need your help right now and so they all of a sudden they start doing these things like, like praying and reading the Bible and, and worshiping and, and that works um, for a while and then the crisis passes and the emergency is over and then they kind of slip back into the old patterns. 
Foxhole faith. If the pool looks crystal clear, sparkles in the sun, eh, you can ignore it. It'll be there whenever you want to go for a swim. It doesn't need any daily attention. If we're honest, we, we probably wouldn't find ourselves as being uh, the, the poster child for one or the other, but if we're honest, we can probably think back in our life where we might have drifted towards one of these or the other. And what we're shooting for is everyday faith. What we're shooting for is consistency. We want to avoid the extremes of fair weather faith or foxhole faith. We don't want faith that changes radically depending on our circumstances. We want to be constant. Job said, Oh, that I were in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head. Job, more than anything else, missed his unbroken fellowship with God. Yes, it would be better if he was healthy and he had his children back and, and things weren't, and, and all his wealth back, but more than anything else, he wanted God back. He wanted a restored relationship. That was the source of his greatest pain. If we were cut off from the fellowship of God, if we were cut off from our fellowship with God, would we notice? Would we be able to tell a difference? between fellowship with God and not having fellowship with God? How much fellowship with God do we have in our everyday lives? Is there a time when we meet with God? Is there a time when we talk with God? Not just when we're in the foxhole, not just when everything's going great, but on a, on a regular, everyday basis. If we lost everything else, and still had fellowship with God, would we be good with that? Or would we be willing to lose everything else if only we could maintain that fellowship with God? And if not, let's get there. If not, let's do something about it. Let's change that. Let's level out our, our levels, our, our relationship levels with God. No more extremes. No more drifting away or depending on circumstances. It's been said or observed that, that most people live their life not by what's best, or they, most people fill their discretionary time not with what's best, but what's, with what's easiest and what's right in front of them and what catches their eye and, and, and what's right there. And advertisers know this. That's why they put their product out there because sometimes it doesn't matter um, if the product is the best out there. They just know that if they get it out there and it's seen, if it's in front of your eyes, then they're more likely to purchase the product. It's the, it's the same thing. Sometimes, sometimes we as people live life according not to what's best, but what's right there and immediate and easiest. They, they say, and it's been observed, very few people actually determine from an objective standpoint what is best. And then they restructure their life around that. How, what is the best way to use my discretionary time? Not with what's necessarily easiest or what appeals to me most, 
or what's right there in front of you, but what's best? And then do that. There was a study in, in London that determined how long it took for most people to learn a new habit to the point like flossing or something like that, to the point where you don't have to think about it, you don't have to be motivated, you just do it. It's just part of your routine. 18 days was the fastest, 254 days was the longest, with an average of 66. That's about how long it took to establish a new habit. I would challenge us this morning to take a look at our lives, take a look at our discretionary time, figure out not what's easiest or what's most convenient or what interests us the most even, but what is best in terms of God's word and our relationship with him, maintaining an everyday fellowship with God. What's one thing that we can do to increase our everyday faith? And then develop that into a lifestyle habit. So whether it's, it's prayer or reading or family devotions or an accountability group or I mean, you name it. Something that's going to help you maintain an everyday faith. And then start. Something that we can point to and say, this is going to be part of my everyday faith. It's not going to depend on the circumstances. And it's going to happen no matter what kind of season I happen to be going through. Whether it's a, it's a crystal clear day with, a, with, with water that, that's uh, very appealing to look at or whether it's one of those dark times where I wouldn't want to get in at all. It's going to be part of my everyday routine. It's going to be part of my everyday faith. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want this to be true in our life. We, we see the, the truth in Job's life. We see him maintaining an everyday faith, consistency. And we want this to be true in our lives as well. We want a level everyday faith that does not depend on our circumstances. We, we want a faith that longs for more than anything genuine fellowship with you because of who you are. Not for what you can do for us but for who you are and what you have done for us. Father, fill us with your spirit. Enable us to take steps today to live consistently before you and with you. Amen.